Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Alan Stevens is the Western correspondent for The Trace, an online news source that investigates gun violence in America. He's been with them for nearly four years. He has a background in law enforcement, military, and sociology, not your typical journalism path. He's a graduate of the University of North Texas. He served in both the Coast Guard and Air Force, and he's a gun owner. Alan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. What's your journalism origin story? So... I never thought, I think, in a a thousand years, I would ever be a a journalist at at all. So for people who don't know, right, the the media landscape is is pretty selective, right? Most of the people that become a journalist, right, are highly motivated to be a journalist from the ground up. And so it's not uncommon to find people who are very well educated, very well traveled. And then when they master the journalism, when they get into the journalism world, right, then you kind of specialize. And, and so for me, I'm the opposite. I'm, I, I came in backwards. I, I grew up in a small suburb of North Texas. My, my mom was this, this Southern Black woman who essentially grew up during the civil rights era and experienced everything that you could experience, right? So segregation bust in to schools and and she marries my dad who's this like white appalachian military guy who who's kind of very skeptical of authority and and stuff like that and so they they have me and and i as a, as a small child i've always gravitated towards firearms i i had been creative but I was always a kid that was very much like at a very young age, like, ooh, I want to take me to the shooting range when, when I'm 12, 13. I'm like, hey, I want to, I, I want to get a gun. And, and so this is something that I was just always obsessed with. And my mom, being a black woman, had her opinions on that. But my dad and, and being in Texas and coming from the military, that's something that he kind of nurtured, right? And in that environment that I was in, that having young people be into firearms is not necessarily an abnormal thing. So, so with that, they assumed that I would go to the military and that's exactly what, what happened. I end up going to the military. I go into the coast guard and um, essentially what happens is this like spalling effect because I, I think maybe I'm going to go there and do like maybe search and rescue or something like that. But I end up going to essentially the Gulf of Mexico where it's more kind of narcotics and vessel boardings and that type of thing. And anyone who's been in that space will tell you, you kind of spalls, like you get one skill set and it emerges into the next one. And so I end up in the Air Force and then I end up in a municipal police academy. I do a short stint as a, as a law enforcement officer. And then I start aspiring to go into the Fed, to start going into the DEA, ATF, the FBI, and, uh, and I'm actually pretty close in the running to go to the ATF when the fiscal cliff hits. And it's during that fiscal cliff that they're where it's like, listen, it's going to be maybe a year, year two out before we even have like an academy class. Like these hiring process gets so extended out. So someone says, you know what, man, like you should try podcasting. Like we listen to podcasts and it was almost like a dare. And they were like, hey, you should 
you you should try it. And I was like, yeah, whatever. So I, I, I called up the local public radio station, which is KUT in Austin. And I just, I just asked them, I said, Hey, I'd like to take a tour. Like, I don't know anything about radio. And they said, we could do you one better. You can just volunteer. You can volunteer and we'll almost treat you like an intern. And so that was my start. I got in there and I was very much on the back end. I, I was cutting audio. I was booking interviews. I, and I, I totally like didn't belong there. Right. And so like, they put me in this night shift and, and kind of was like seen, don't, don't be heard, like just be back here. But when it was in that kind of night shift, I started getting in the mess. Like I kind of went, I looked at the journalism toolkit and then I looked at the military toolkit, right. And kind of that law enforcement toolkit. And I went back to that and I said, you know what, like, I think I can do an investigation. Like I, like I had studied to do criminal investigations. And so that's exactly what I did. I started doing these investigations, these unsanctioned investigations with no one knowing, with no real support. At the time, there wasn't really an interest in doing investigations or any resources. So I was paying for FOIAs or document requests and stuff out of my, my, my own pocket and skipping days to go down into prisons and things like that because I was very passionate to kind of tell some of these stories and and when they would come out they would hit they would always do very well and just kind of come out of nowhere and so the center for investigative reporting and reveal had a program for essentially journalists of color that had no support people were there in the same situation like I was in and they had heard of this key reporter that was putting together these investigations, right? Like I said, with like just duct tape and pocket lint and stuff, just coming up with them really on, on their own. And, and so they came in and said, we'll finance you. And I mean, they kind of opened up the war room to me. And I used that entire war room. That was my first investigation and where I, I looked very heavily into the ATF and we sued up, up, into, up into the Eighth Circuit Court. And and so it created kind of space level foundation for me as a gun reporter and the rest ended up kind of being history. So from the Texas standard four years there, I knew source some work as a freelancer and then to the trace. I, I kind of, First yeah. of all, I think we're going to have a fair number of people who aren't necessarily familiar with the trace. Introduce us to the trace and its mission. All right. So the trace is a journalism nonprofit that specializes in gun violence in America. And we're fairly, we're fairly small. We're, I'd probably say we're, I think we've just recently expanded, maybe we're in the twenties now with staff, but we're all specialized in covering kind of these, these facets of American gun violence. And so we have reporters that specialize in, in covering the lobby. We have reporters that are, are kind of dotted in some across the nation in some of the more violent cities that experience gun crime. And then we have reporters covering the industry, technology, politics, and kind of all of these different facets of, of gun violence in America and the stakeholders, right, that are around them. Holly Woodward, who is Bob Woodward's daughter, is the editor-in-chief the people that read it, from what I understand, politicians, law enforcement, policy drivers, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I say that a large core of the Traces readers are what I say is stakeholders. 
And so many people in the Second Amendment community on either side of the fence have a tendency to kind of go to us because they know we have just a specialization in this. We kind of stay on it and we'll follow the topic. And there are certainly a lot of a number, even though your staff is small, there are certainly some people with prominent experience in that regard. I want to read some headlines from some of your stories just to give people a better idea of what you do. From 2019, gunmakers are profiting from toy guns that can get kids killed. You had a great kicker quote in that one. The appeal is profit. They sell well. You did an accounting of PPP loans to gun companies. You did a piece, the ATF catches thousands of law-breaking gun dealers and shuts down very few. And then you did something recently on how U.S. guns drive cartel violence in Mexico. And most recently, a couple of different pieces on converted machine guns, something called an auto sear, including one with a subject heading of how we fix this, solutions journalism, and a piece on homemade ghost guns. So you touch a lot of different areas. Your writing has appeared in, among other places, Vice, and in the Vice piece, the gun dealer compared machine guns in terms of availability to PS5s, and you can make a machine gun for $20. You've also partnered with USA Today, the NBCs in the Bay Area, you mentioned Reveal. How does a story or a project and partnership, all these things that I talked about, how do they come about? Wow. So this is actually kind of like part of my, my, my magic, I think, as a reporter. So I, I, one of the things is, is that, like I said, even from like the origin story, right, I, I call, I just cold call a lot of people and my editors have a tendency to know me as someone who, who gets into a lot of, a lot of mess, so to speak, right? I hand out my card to a lot of guys, but the, there's a couple, there's a couple things how we get into this. First of all, You'd be surprised how many local newspapers or regional newspapers look outside their window and, and, and generally this happens quite frequently where they have a gun violence problem that's affecting their community. And then they kind of say, how, well, how do we start, right? Like, what, what do we even look for? And, and that could be regarding documents, that could be firearms identification, that could be just understanding arms trafficking patterns and routes and stuff like that. And so a lot of our partnerships are simply forged from that, where a local area would contact us and say, listen, we're interested in trying to cover this. Do you have any expertise or, or any data or anything that you can, you can share? The other thing is that sometimes it works backwards, right? So we will be monitoring a variety of emerging events or or certain types of news topics and every once in a while it will cross into someone's beat or path and we will reach out to them and say hey we have found out that say there's an emerging crime problem in california would you be interested in partnering on this and because one of the things like we think that's very important and, and this has been just kind of going on in the media industry is that when you work locally, it's always, the story's always so much better when you have a, a local team member on the ground, right? It, it makes so much difference to kind of read the local streets and stuff. So even though we have a lot of the top-down data, it's always great to work with a local partner who can, you know, kind of show us the lay of the land and, and, and add to that story and, and kind of make that something more tangible and real for the readers of the community in which they work in. And so... And, and my favorite, though, is sometimes there's just straight up synergy, right? That it, it's weird how 
you'll walk into a conference or you'll get an email from someone and it's like, Hey, have you guys over there been kind of looking at this? Cause we're kind of looking at this. And it's like, you don't say, we kind of see that pattern too. And, and sometimes some projects have launched that way. That's great. That's essentially the new journalism model, right? With, right. Uh, with essentially a nonprofit coming in, pairing with a larger organization, as you just explained. And what has the collaborative experience been like for you? So far for me, I, I love collaborating for, for some of the reasons I just said, because I think typically it, it, it's always an addition to the story. One of the things when it comes to specifically reporting on the world of firearms, right, is that it's, a, it's, it's kind of a tough beat. And it's a tough beat because one, there's this, the stakes are very high. There's this major national conversation going, going around about what do we do with gun violence? It, 111 people die every day from guns. It's almost a plane crash worth of people every two days. And so there's a lot of pressing issues around public safety. At the same time, America's kind of having this conversation in the dark, right? It's very much still the Wild West, as in there's not a lot of great research. Some of that is by design. And on top of that, the entities that house the best information about gun violence are law enforcement, which are typically the most secretive entities in government when it comes to getting documents or any sort of communications. Specifically, the ATF, which is who I work with, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, who's, they're the kind of chief federal entity regarding firearms. They, due to the political situation regarding just guns in America, they're one of the most secretive entities of federal government. And we actually looked at this through the, just how every federal entity honors public information requests, and the ATF honors less information requests than the FBI, the DEA, and the CIA. And so it's, it's very difficult to pull information. So one of the things that when it comes to kind of these partnerships, it's almost as like a partnership out of necessity, because you almost have to have like an entire strike force of people all working at 100% to sometimes carve out what would be very little in comparative, like in a comparative other topic, right? So sometimes like I, I've been in there, it's 15 or 20 people in multiple news organizations that are fighting over, well, essentially what we get is like 12 pages from the ATF. So like, <laughs> but, but they're so revelatory because there's so little information and the stakes are so high that we kind of figure out that it's worth it. So it, it is kind of interesting news endeavor. I, I get the feeling that you can end the military, but you can't necessarily take the military out of the person. You used the term strike force a moment ago. I noticed <laughs> that in on LinkedIn, you describe your, your jobs as tours, which is a military term, certainly. How has your military background been helpful to you, and if it's been hurtful to you in any way, with regards to how you approach your job? I, I think, and so like I said before, the journalism industry is rather selective. And so, you know, and I don't think any journalist would disagree with this, right? There's always kind of a need, or I would say we could always use more working class backgrounds, more people with military backgrounds, more people with different racial backgrounds in, in journalism. 
I even say that for more practical ways. Even J. Edgar Hoover running the FBI knew you'd probably have to hire black people to infiltrate the Black Panthers, right? <laughs> like they just know. And it's so weird that in journalism, right, a handful of white people will be like, we've got Detroit. We've, we've got it. We mastered it here. And, and so there's always a push to diversify the ranks just for information gathering purposes. But on top of that, it's just like the right thing to do. You, you can't preach fairness or speak truth to power and like you don't have those people in your ranks and so coming from the military and just coming from being black and coming from this kind of smaller suburb of texas it is like i said you're kind of trying to prove yourself right to the ranks of people who went to school for this from the get-go and and have I have friends who I'm close friends with, but they've also gone to Ivy League, right? And, and so I think you're always trying to show them how, or kind of prove to them how those skill sets apply. And, and to be honest, how they can be dangerously effective in some of these spaces if you learn how to kind of master them. And, and that's what happened on the flip side. I, I, I tell people that I feel a little weird about kind of my my rocket power into investigative reporting because one of the was I went from this kind of plucky producer and then all of a sudden I'm this like national investigative reporter and and that was a little bit out of necessity because most journalists sucked when it came to guns I'm just going to be 100% <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and 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 they know that they it's it's hard and so and when you look at gun reporting of the past and you look at the Second Amendment community, gun, gun reporting has messed up in basic things like nomenclature and basic things like just not naming the, the gun right. And that totally has discredited them in that arena in the eyes of a significant part of, of America. And so part of it was just like, this guy knows what an AR-15 looks like. He's comfortable with shooting one. He can shoot one. He knows what a Glock looks like. He, he, he's carried one. And so part of me was like, they almost shoved me out there. After Parkland occurred, it was almost like I was getting requested all the time because I ended up being the small pool of people that simply was very confident in that arena. And and then after that, I kind of took with that and kind of ran with it. And so I think being in the military, besides just the practical of understanding firearms and stuff like that, I also think it gives you a great deal of discipline. I think it gives you a great deal of patience, which is a huge thing in investigative reporting. I think a lot of reporters, it's difficult to not be on paper. It's, it's difficult to not have your name up in lights. And, but I think coming from the military, I think you think a little bit more strategically. You think, uh, my editors will attest to this, I think of things in almost operations, almost missions, right? And, and I think of things, I think more is clearing an objective, right? And so I've had a lot of partners say that I'll let perfect be the enemy of good. And, uh, and I kind of tell them, I, I'm just waiting for that that one shot, one kill. So like, and so like, if I have to wait six or seven months for that interview to come in or that right document to come in, I'll, I'll do it. And, and that's something I think was born from that military experience. That, okay. That leads into the next question, which was about your process. Let's talk process for a couple of minutes here. How do you, you write these long pieces 
in some cases you write things that sometimes are are more kind of like medium length but what is your overall process in terms of gathering information making sure everything's organized because i'm sure you got to know spreadsheets and databases and things of that sort outlining writing leads kickers all that how do how do you put that together over a period of potentially many months to to get something like what comes out yeah yeah no no this is a great question and i love to share this because i think journalism nowadays has kind of been very like pull the rabbit out the hat kind of magic trick and everyone's like where do they get that and i think it raises a lot of questions right and so and so i love to kind of be like yeah we should show more of our work when it comes down to this so the first thing is right i think one of the things that, that you got to let people know is that you're open for business, right? And I always say this, I, I think it's harder to start as an investigative reporter in a topic than it is to, to kind of ride the wave, right? Once, once you're in there for a little bit, because no one even really knows you, you really exist in that space. So a lot of it is simply kind of calling up and putting your calling card down and saying, hey, I care about this and calling up government workers and agents and law enforcement and kind of saying, Hey, I'm the guy that like really, really is in business for that. And I was shocked how many people were kind of just like, what, there's a reporting outlet that's dedicated. There's a guy who, who even wants this. Um, but I, I think a lot of my conceptualizing around stories, I think this is, a lot of it is kind of sociologically, I think, how I kind of look at things. I, I, I look, so my specific beat now is emerging violence. And so it, it, it revolves around new types of crimes and new crime trends. And so a lot of it is kind of looking at the world outside. So one of the things that I looked at, for instance, for automatic weapons was simply there's just more spot reports of, of people talking about, hey, I heard automatic fire outside. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, let me just ask around and, and see if this is something going on. And, and, and to my surprise, right? And so I feel like many times it's almost like a little bit of like kind of predictive analysis. Like when we saw the pandemic going on, I, I could have I could have known, like, if you looked outside, you could see the fear, you see the, the palpable fear, you knew gun sales would go up, right? Uh, I, I did a, a story on police training and stuff like that, and how the training had gotten very extreme and that they were doing some stuff that was like kind of extending past, right, what typical law enforcement duties would do, like tactical knife fighting is typically stuff that you isn't really reserved for law enforcement on citizen encounters and things like that and 50 caliber Barrett's sniper shooting and stuff like that and a lot of that was just kind of going on to the police forums and talking to police officers and seeing how afraid they were in their environment and how spalled up they had become and and so I guess it, it, it's almost like you look at A and you can kind of walk it to B and maybe C. And a lot of other stuff I will say is just straight documents. I, I am always looking at OAG reports, GAO reports, 
audits, new laws, and I look at them very, very specifically. And when you look at these reports, I think most people look at kind of the top executive analysis or something like that, like, oh, what do they find? But no, I really look at them and every once in a while, they'll say something that's like, oh, this information was pulled from so-and-so in database, or it was pulled from so-and-so record. And, and so doing that, you find out like, oh, the, the, the DEA has to go to certain insurance departments and, and stuff like that, because guess what? They have to pay out insurance for injured CIs, right? And you figure out that they have these like weird things out there. And then you request those and kind of grab those. And eventually when you do get those documents, you can find some really surprising stories hidden away in them. What's the reporter editor relationship like? Wow. Okay. So, so this is what I said, like, before like your editor can really make or break your your whole life experience the first editor you know i got was very much just kind of like your stereotypical like you'd see in spider-man or something right just screaming and yelling at people and and i they really just kind of a, a bad editor can totally kill i mean your creativity process. I mean, I, we've seen them stifle it. And, but I really lucked out with an editor who, for the most part, he is almost, he, he does a couple things for me, actually. I think that's kind of interesting. One of the things is that he tries to find stuff that that gets me excited, right? It, it, it's it's interesting. I, I think there's like a, there's a lot of carrot stick approaches and stuff like that. And I think a lot of editors use the stick, but I, I luckily have an editor who uses more of the carrot and he lets me decide what that carrot is. He's always kind of being like, what, what do you feel passionate about? What do you think is the biggest issue? What, what is something that is gonna wake you up and, and make you just wanna claw out that next interview? And, and I love having an editor that's like that because want those to are the things you want to do. Yeah, his name's Miles Corman. Amazing dude. And on top of that, he also protects me. And, and, and I mean that in a good way because I really care about this, this gun space. And so it can I can be easily overwhelmed with requests to, to help people and get involved in all sorts of projects and totally get spread too thin. And so he works very well with kind of saying like, listen, this is the most important product. This is, this is the thing that I think you're going to do best at because you're you, right? And, and it feels very kind of curtailed specifically for me. And so I think Having a good agent is almost being like a singer and having like a good producer. If they get your sound and they can make music for your particular vocal patterns, it's like a match made in heaven. And, and so far, I've really lucked out with that. What are the stories that you've done, particularly for The Trace, that you're most proud of, ideally ones that produce some sort of impactful change? So, so I, I would say the inspection reports project where what we did was we looked at the process of how the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives is supposed to go out and inspect gun stores. And essentially, we got uh, just a whole boatload of documents that had never been seen before. And the documents were so detailed that we we're able to kind of scrutinize them almost to a statistical level. 
And what we were able to find was that out of thousands of gun stores, the ATF had routinely essentially turned their, turned their, turned the other eye to violations. And, and in fact, we saw a pretty aggressive pattern where field agents would go into these stores and say, listen, we need to intervene with this gun store. They were losing guns. They can't, they had hired felons. They had admitted to selling guns to people who couldn't pass background checks. And the manager would come in and say, go ahead and keep that store in business. And we later found out that some of these stores were involved in arms trafficking schemes. And so I was very proud of that story. And the story you mentioned before, the, the machine gun story was another one where we started looking at, right, essentially started looking at every prosecution for automatic weapons and, and federal courts over a number of years. And what we saw was just an extreme spike where, you know, automatic weapons in the hands of criminals were regarded as a myth for the most part when you talk to law enforcement. And then suddenly they came out of nowhere and we had found out that what was happening was people had seized on a new kind of do-it-yourself gun culture and using things like 3D printers and using things like international drop shipping. And they were getting these little $20 pieces that could convert an average Glock into an automatic weapon. And so I'm proud of those stories because they took so much time. And so... I worked on the machine gun story for almost two years, and the inspection report story was almost two years as well. And these are like very massive collaborative efforts that I'm just very like kind of proud of because, like I said, we're like in the middle of the pandemic and, and kind of the worst of it, and we're, we're cleaning documents and we're pulling just tons and tons of, of data that had never before seen. Both of those stories also had significant impact. The Biden administration had, I think the following week after we released the inspection report story, said that he nominated an ATF director. He didn't get that ATF director. <laughs> the next one got in though. But and, and then they said that they wanted to take on this problem with gun stores and about 100 ATF inspectors got hired. And then for the machine gun story, it was such an unknown that it actually got a number of senators and congresspeople. I think we had about 40 or 50 congresspeople that sent in letters to the Department of Justice asking them to look into this issue of converted machine guns. And I believe uh, Senator Klobuchar's office introduced a, a, a bill to, to essentially have the Department of Justice start tracking this. And so... Yeah, those are kind of significant things, but they were long games. They were long, long heists, so it took a while. It occurs to me that it, there's somewhat of a full circle thing happening here because you said that you started in the United States Coast Guard, which is known for its life-saving capabilities. And somewhat indirectly here through the work that you're doing, essentially, it comes back to the military a little bit with the idea of saving lives. Your work, maybe not exactly directly in the moment, but over the as you said, the long game, that, that certainly, I think, comes into play. With that, how do you avoid situations where the job takes too much out of you mentally? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a great question. 
it, I think the first thing that, you know, and, and this is a saying in the Coast Guard, which is, and I'll, I'll never forget it, but when they say you're, you're in the water with people drowning, who's your first priority? And it's, it's to save yourself. And it, and it seems brutal, but they tell you because if, if you're down, you can't help anyone else, right? And so I, I think a lot of it is, and, and luckily the trace has gotten pretty good at this over the last couple of years, understanding that we need significant breaks, that the beat on top of that is somewhat abnormal beat. We get a lot of resistance and, and, and digging out this information. The political situation is very polarizing. So for reporters, we get very aggressive responses and hate mail and things like that that can bother people. And, and on top of that, the, the stakes can be very, very high because, again, you're talking about death and, and um, sometimes you're talking about death in the aggregate, right? Where, where you're kind of counting up how many hundreds or thousands of people may have died over a number of years. And so it, it can be difficult. I, I, I don't think, I think there has been some times where my editor has pulled me aside and been like, yo, you're, you're, you're fizzling out. I could see that you're, you're pretty angry or upset and that this is bothering you. I think also at the other side of the fence though, you have to take your victories. I think journalists have a tendency to kind of maybe be a little bit modest with with their with their wins, right? But I'm always excited to scrape out some information. As journalists, we we're not supposed to advocate, right, for policy. We're not supposed to advocate for any sort of pro con whatever, right? But one of the things that I had this really great journalist tell me is that you can always advocate for transparency. You can always advocate for truth. And so one of the reasons, right, that I kind of gravitated towards gun reporting was because my first investigation, I was looking for information and, and I was just told this information used to be publicly available, but lobbyists essentially decided to block it from the American public. It used to be something you could get on CD-ROM for $5. And then after 2003, it is now some of the most secretive information. And, and, that, and that, it kind of hit me at this moment where I was, like I said, America was having this conversation in the dark. We're talking about gun violence. We're talking about something that kills a lot of people. And so much of this information was hidden, not because it's not there, but, it, but because it's by design, there, people don't want it out there. And so regardless of my opinions on guns, right, because I own a lot of guns and I own a lot of stuff I report on, surprisingly, and a lot of readers and stuff are surprised when they figure out I have ghost gun kits. I, I have pistol braced weapons and blocks and a lot of stuff I talk about. But regardless of my opinions on all of that, Americans deserve, right, the unvarnished truth right? If we want to have this stuff, we have to understand the cost of that stuff. And so for me, I think it's so rare for us to find in life, like a righteous fight. 
but I see all these people who want to just know about like what's killing our society. And I think we deserve that as Americans. And so regardless of where that falls or what happens, right, just that mission to kind of just carve out the truth, it kind of makes a lot of the, the, the crap feel a little bit better. That's why I think it keeps me kind of like pushing maybe a little bit harder or it makes me feel like it, it, it might be worth it all. At the same time, I will say this. I also know that like, kind of going back to the military again, there's only so, so far a person even is supposed to go in this beat, I think. I think this is a beat that once you step into it, there's always a timer on it. I, I don't think anyone's supposed to be on the front line forever. I don't think anyone's supposed to be like that high speed exposed to this stuff 100%. I think, right, I think even I know that like my tenure may be longer than some of my colleagues because I just really love this and, and maybe the way I got into it kind of protects me a bit from that. But I also kind of look at it and I'm like, I know that I have to pass the torch eventually on to someone else. And that's like a good thing, right? Because they're going to be refreshed and they're going to have better ideas. And like, they deserve like a, a space to, to get in this too. So like, I'm always kind of looking for the next Elan or something out there so they can do it. I was going to say, is there a, a chance in your future that you'll be reporting on something? That, do you ever want to report on something that's just a lighter topic? I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I love history, right? I think one of the things that I always love to ask, maybe even more than our editors or society even cares for, is like how we got here, right? Mm -hmm. How do we even get to the situation in the first place? And and then on top of that, I think there's a lot of other valiant battles going on. The things that are going on with forest fires and, and the people that are fighting in, in those spaces is is a battle of epic proportions that I don't think may maybe covered the way that it should be because it's so crazy. And then there's just so much other parts of what I would call the fringe and extreme world that I think maybe some old dusty gun reporter with my background could kind of <laughs> etch out some good stories too. Gotcha. All right. So last question. We salute you for your good work. That's why we had you on. And we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization, ideally one that you're not affiliated with, that you'd like to salute for their good work? I'm going to salute Capital B. They are a new Black-led organization that is covering Blackness in America. And I think that's so important, especially post-George Floyd. I think for so many Americans, they, regardless of what they, they felt, racism or beliefs or anything, one of the things that I saw was just like how shocked people were at just the sheer knowledge that their fellow Americans, maybe the person sitting next to them, that their American reality was so starkly different. And so having an organization that can kind of show that, right? Because we could kind of see that what happens to your neighbors, what happens to the people next door is important, right? And so I would like to salute them because I think that's, I think that's a place to keep the eye on because I think, as you could see, it's just like, this is the American 
this is the American conversation. This is what kind of like where we're heading. And I think people have a lot of unanswered questions that Capital B may have some answers for. Alon Stevens, thank you for taking the time to join us. We wish you the best of luck in your future reporting, and we'll be keeping close tabs on it. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. The Trace is an online newsroom, the only newsroom devoted to covering gun violence and its effect on our communities. You can learn more about them and see Alon's work at thetrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.